You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I'm speaking with Tim Palmer about his visionary, expansive, and yes, brave new book, The Primacy of Doubt, From Quantum Physics to Climate Change, How the Science of Uncertainty Can Help Us Understand Our Chaotic World. Tim challenges conventional wisdom in quantum mechanics and free will. I love it, which does not mean necessarily that I believe it. Welcome, Tim. I look forward to discussing the book. It really is terrific. Thanks, Robert. It's good to be here. Let me start with just a brief bio for everyone. Uh, Tim is a Royal Society Research Professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Oxford. Trained as a mathematical physicist, he pioneered the development of operational ensemble weather and climate forecasting, which are now standard best practices globally. He contributed to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. Tim, we have lots to cover, uh, and I, I want to go through this book in detail, but let's start by unpacking the title and, and its comprehensive subtitle, bigger than most books, but there's a lot there. So let me repeat it for everyone. The Primacy of Doubt, which is the title, and the subtitle, From Quantum Physics to Climate Change, that's quite a, quite a jump, uh, How the Science of Uncertainty Can Help Us Understand Our Chaotic World. So let's start with this. You have doubt in the title and uncertainty in the subtitle. Uh, please distinguish between these two concepts. Well, <clears throat> I don't distinguish particularly between them. Um, the title actually was, a, uh, I've lifted the title from a, one of my all-time favorite quotes, which was from James Glick's biography of Richard Feynman. And in it, he said that he, Feynman, believed in the primacy of doubt, not as, a, not as a blemish on our ability to know, but as the essence of knowing. And that's kind of been a, a kind of theme of mine over my career. I've had a sort of somewhat varied career covering a lot of different topics from fundamental physics to applied physics. And uncertainty has been a kind of constant theme through all, all of that. So I've tried to write a book which, you know, where uncertainty is the, is the dominant theme. But, you know, that James Glick quote uh, about Feynman, his belief in the primacy of doubt, was such a marvelous quote, I, I couldn't help but lift those words <laughs> yes. well, for the title. Well, doubt has sort of a psychological uh, implication and connotation, where uncertainty, the way you're using it, becomes very scientific. That's the distinguishing uh, concept that I see, that doubt is this overall vision of of presenting everything, and that's, I think, the very last sentence in your book, you, you come back to the word doubt, which was wonderful. It, it was a very nice uh, rounding out. Uh, but uncertainty, then, is the dominant scientific theme as you, as you develop. Okay, next, uh, you, you say the world is chaotic, and I think a, a, anyone who is sentient on the planet would feel that as an uncontroversial statement. Uh, but you mean something much more scientifically uh, about the, the word chaos and chaotic. Just give us a very brief overview. Well, this actually goes back into the 20th century where it was realized that many systems uh, that look 
completely as if they as if they there was no order or no kind of form governing their behavior because they just fluctuated completely irregularly um my my old colleague bob may who was a uh, world-renowned ecologist applied this to populations of um of, of biological systems uh, that seemingly boomed and bust with complete irregularity and unpredictability but showed that there's order there is actually a, a, an order underlying that and there are kind of equations which describe that and describe the the disorder the weather is another example you know you look at a time series of weather it looks like it has no sort of structure to it the weather changes erratically from one day to the next one month to the next but we know perfectly well there are underlying equations so it's that sort of tension between what looks as if there's no order and the fact that underlying that there is order and that's yes kind of and this is a it. fundamental principle of the book and indeed a deep insight into the nature of reality because the word chaos in 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 common usage the connotations means no order but in fact the the whole theory of chaos theory is to develop the internal order and to understand what that means and that that's really the foundation of the book and that's wonderful okay so the next phrase you have in in the subtitle is the science of uncertainty which uh, is somewhat related obviously to to chaos theory but de define that exact term the science of uncertainty how is that developed what is the mathematics? Very briefly. Well, I think what is quite a common perception about systems, you know, could be like the economy or, or the, the global health or indeed weather um, and, and other ones, is that they seem to evolve in a reasonably ordered and predictable way for, for long periods of time, but suddenly become extremely unstable and unpredictable. You know, so we get financial crashes, we get, you know, devastating weather events, we get world wars, you know, perhaps we're on the brink of something now, I don't know. Um, the question is, how can science deal with that particular aspect? You see, if uncertainty, if uncertainty was just the same every day, if we could just put a standard error bar on any prediction we made, and it was the same error bar, I mean, there wouldn't be that much interesting science behind it. The, the interesting part about the science is that the uns uncertainty can be virtually zero for long periods of time and then explode to extraordinarily large values uh, intermittently. So when I talk about the science of uncertainty, it's kind of, I suppose, if anything, focusing on that particular issue. Why is uncertainty so variable and why can it suddenly explode where for long periods of time it's, it's kind of relatively benign? Yeah, and that's the theme in the book, and we see that over and over again. You develop it in the first part, kind of theoretically, and then apply it. it, it it's, a, it's a wonderful approach. All right, I'm still on the title. We have a long subtitle, so I, ha I haven't finished yet. I haven't finished yet. So okay. the, the, last, the last part of the subtitle is the science of uncertainty, which you've just described, and now you're applying it to quantum physics and climate change, uh, which sounds like a, an odd combination because... Uh, let me give you my conventional wisdom thinking on this. Now, in quantum physics, conventional wisdom is that there is fundamental randomness, unpredictability in principle at the most fundamental levels, yet exquisitely predictable when summed over all the possibilities at macroscopic levels. And we have all sorts of proof of that in everything, you know, in, in our cell phones, everything else we're doing today. Whereas in climate change, the unpredictability is chaos theory, 
which is certainly fearsomely complex to predict as a practical matter and, and ever more complex, but its unpredictability is, is, has a different connotation to it and it doesn't seem to be fundamental. So the uncertainties in quantum physics, again, conventional wisdom, are fundamentally different from the uncertainties in climate change. Now, that's the conventional wisdom, and I think you challenge that. Is that right? That's right. I, I, uh, I challenge that. And, you know, I, I have worked, uh, my PhD was in the uh, borderline between quantum mechanics and, and gravitation theory. So I have a kind of background in that. And um, you're right. The, the, the standard conventional wisdom is that climate change, weather prediction, the uncertainties are what philosophers call epistemological. In other words, it's, it's our, the fact that we don't know everything about the system that creates the uncertainty. Whereas the orthodox thinking in quantum mechanics is that it's the actual equations are uncertain. And the, and the phrase then would be called ontological uncertainty. Of course, Einstein hated that. You know, that's why he, the whole phrase, God does not play dice, is just saying this, on, this notion of ontological uncertainty is just crazy. You know, I mean, who asks for that? It's just a bizarre idea when you think about it. So uh, I do. I do challenge uh, the the reasons for orthodox physics thinking that quantum uncertainty is ontological and therefore different to chaotic uncertainty. Okay, so this, this I want to put that in everyone's mind because we're going to get into that a lot deeper later because that's a fundamental point here. I'm just trying to give an overview so we can understand where we're going. So now what I want to do is do a brief architecture of the book. We spent the first period of time on the title. We spent a lot of time on the title and subtitle. Now we're going to get into a, the overarching architecture of the book. You have three parts. Uh, so just give me a sense of what you are trying to accomplish in each of these parts. Begin with part one, the science of uncertainty, where you talk about three specific uh, important ideas. That's right. I want to, uh, the first part is kind of introducing the science of, of chaos. So some of this, as I, as I say, was, you know, people may have, if, for example, James Glick, who I mentioned, wrote uh, the, the biography of Feynman. He also wrote back in the, I think, 1980s, a, a really wonderful book uh, on chaos theory. Um, so I, I cover a little bit of that. But I, I try to cover some other things. And one of the really, I think, fantastic uh, discoveries in 20th century science was the fact that there's a kind of geometry underlying these chaotic systems. So we, we talked about order. There's order in, in chaos. And the usual way when, when scientists talk about that, they, they, they talk about the equations that govern the evolution of chaotic systems. But in my book, I want to actually, uh, I, what I do is talk about something which I view to be even more fundamental than a set of uh, what are called differential equations. And that is the geometry. There's a certain geometry to chaos. And it's a geometry in, in a kind of slightly abstract space called state space. And this geometry uh, is an example of a fractal geometry, uh, which means that you kind of zoom into it and you see structures reappearing. And it, that kind of geometry underlies pretty much everything else in the book. So I try to really describe, you know, uh, the 
Ed Lorentz, who was the meteorologist at MIT that discovered this geometry, you know, how he how he went about discovering it and what a fantastic, you know, I kind of rank it up there with Einstein's relativity and Schrodinger and Heisenberg's quantum mechanics in terms of, of just the extraordinary discovery of it. And then in the other part of the book, yeah, so the other the other aspect is um I try to distinguish between what's called low order chaos and high order chaos. So some some systems are very simple. They have very few equations, but they still can be chaotic and unpredictable. A good example is a pendulum. If you have a pendulum, but instead of having a single sort of strut going down to the pendulum, you put a joint halfway up the pendulum. So there are actually two separate kind of bits that can swing backwards and forwards in a slightly independent way. That actually is an example of a chaotic system. The bob oscillates extremely irregularly, um, but it's a very simple system. On the other hand, if you have something like the weather or the economy or whatever, you know, that is a very complex system. And what I try to show is that if you want to represent those systems uh, in, a, in an approximate but realistic way, it's actually good to introduce noise so noise is another theme of my book, you know, the, the, the notion that noise actually can be a positive, constructive resource in many situations and not the nuisance it is. And for example, in weather and climate models these days, we actually introduce noise uh, deliberately into the models to, to make them more realistic. Um, and uh, later in the book, I talk about the role of, of noise in the brain as a potential uh, you know, resource that the brain uses, then maybe it's the critical thing that makes us the creative people we are. So the first part of the book is about that. Uh, I try to do it without any mathematics, but it's a kind of involves, if you like, mathematical concepts or fractals and things like that, uh, and the role of noise in complex, like turbulent fluids and things. Good. Uh, right at this point, I think it's helpful for, to, to explain very briefly ensemble forecasting. I put that in your bio. That was perhaps one of your great contributions uh, to, to, to the society of the world, not just uh, uh, theoretical uh, mathematics and physics and chaos theory. Um, just describe that very briefly, because that, that the, the achievement there, I think, um, uh, exemplifies many of the principles you're now speaking about. That's right. Um, well, I, I worked for many years in a, uh, an international operational weather forecast center. Um, and when I joined, the, the kind of paradigm at the time was that you, you, you use all your computer resources to make the best possible single weather forecast that you can. You, you make the model as complicated as you can, uh, given the computer resource. And every day or every 12 hours, actually, you, you make a, a single weather forecast. And that's basically you know, and you might make it for a week ahead, something like that. And um, what I, uh, you know, what, what used to bother me was what I just mentioned earlier, that you can get systems which are predictable for, you know, day after day, and then suddenly become extremely unpredictable. And um, I said, well, you know, we're at prey to one of these events. You know, we, we, we put out a forecast, which actually will then will turn out to be completely and utterly wrong because we've entered an exceptionally chaotic part of the climate, uh, you know, attractor, the, the, the thing that governs the uh, evolution of weather. And um, 
And sure enough, actually, there was a uh, in the in the UK there was a remarkable storm, one of the worst in three hundred years, which was completely unforecast, even twelve hours before it happened. It was extraordinary, and that um, I think suddenly made people realise we've got to do a better job at this. We've got to actually put error bars on our forecast, and we've got to be able to do it in such a way that we can we can see these extremely unpredictable events in advance. Tim, so ensemble forecasting is the perfect segue into part two, which is predicting our chaotic world in which you apply that concept of ensemble forecasting to a whole series of different things. Again, just the overview of part two. That's right. I mean, the idea of ensemble forecasting is to try to predict ahead of time whether we're in a predictable situation or potentially heading into an extremely unpredictable situation. And it was something that, you know, didn't happen uh, for many decades in, in you know, weather forecasting development. Um, and to some extent, it's helped by the fact that computers were getting bigger and bigger, you know, through the, through the 70s, 80s and 90s uh, every couple of years. So the idea is you run, uh, instead of doing a single weather forecast, you run 50 forecasts every every day. And the forecasts differ by, if you like, meteorological flaps of butterflies' wings. They just differ by tiny, tiny, tiny uh, amounts, which are consistent with our uncertainty in those initial conditions. Uh, and the idea is, in a way, quite simple. When the atmosphere is in a very stable predictable situation, then all those 50 members look like each other. They all resemble each other. The forecasts are pretty much identical. Uh, but as happens, when the atmosphere goes through a particularly unstable and unpredictable situation, then the forecasts diverge from each other and you can get rapid, rapidly diverging solutions. And that, at least that warns the forecaster, you know, that you we, we can't make any very specific prediction today. And the best you can do is some kind of probabilistic prediction. Um, so this is now pretty much used universally around the world. And it's kind of really, uh, I would say, transformed the reliability of weather prediction uh, into, into a science that is now, I would say, pretty reliable. Yeah. And then in part two, what you do, which we will discuss later, is apply that same uh, way of thinking to pandemics, economics, uh, crashes, e even wars. Uh, that's the essence of, of part two, to, to see the practicality of this in, in today's world. That's right. That's exactly right. Then in part three, understanding the chaotic universe and our place in it, uh, you then uh, uh, leap off the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, it's it's great to be able to write a book where you can, if you like, let your uh, imagination and your prejudices and your sort of feelings about things run wild in a way which, uh, let's say, in a, in a peer reviewed journal, you might have more difficulty. <laughs> so it's great fun and, and we'll we'll get to it. One of the themes uh, will be uh, counterfactual worlds which is a very deep idea in philosophy that you apply very broadly to some of the biggest questions that, that, that we have challenging current belief, as I said, in quantum mechanics, free will, and others. If I could just add very briefly that the, the whole point about talking about counterfactual worlds is that the, the ideas about chaos and the, fract the geometry of chaos lead you to this new perspective on counterfactual worlds. It's not something, you know, you just dream up out of the blue. You're forced in this direction uh, by, by the geometry of chaos. 
Okay, so that's what we really want to focus on. Now, I want to go into part one in some depth, and that is that is one of the keys because that certainly is a, um, a, a major discovery. In fact, you make what initially seemed to me as an astonishing claim, um, you know, six standard deviations away from normal claims, that Ed Lorenz's discovery of fractal geometry of chaos is not only one of the greatest discoveries in chaos theory, but is one of the greatest in all of science, uh, the concept of deterministic non-periodic flow. Um, so uh, go into that in some depth to explain why... What is the significance of that of that discovery? I mean, the first thing to say was uh, the first thing to say is uh, Lorentz discovered. I mean, Lorentz, you know, he Lorentz himself had a hunch that the reason why weather is can be so difficult to predict is actually not because weather is a very complex system, but that there is something fundamental about the nonlinear structure of the equations which make it unpredictable and that could be teased out with a very um a very uh, kind of set of equations which are really very s simple to look at but have kind of complicated consequences and there by the way he was also six standard deviations away from conventional wisdom i mean you could ask a thousand scientists and you'd say why do you know, why is a turbulent fluid so difficult to predict? Why is the weather so difficult to predict? Why is the economy so difficult to predict? And they would all say, oh, because these are really, really complicated systems. You know, they're billions of degrees of freedom. Uh, it's, they're bound to be unpredictable because they're so complex. And uh, completely against the odds, he showed, you know, this was not necessary. This was not a necessary thing. So he came up with these three very simple equations which had this property of not being able to uh, be predicted uh, uh, indefinitely into the future. But more than that, he, what he showed was, you know, the, the thing that bothered him was the three equations. So the three equations are equations in three variables. And so you can think of these three variables as defining a kind of three-dimensional space. It, it's not exactly physical space. It's what we call state space, the state of the three so a state of the model is a point in this three-dimensional space. And the question he asked himself was, what if I run my equations forever into the future and just watch how this point evolves? Does it just fill the whole space or does it fill a subset of the space or what happens? And he realized it filled a subset of the space. But then he couldn't figure out what this subset was. It looked like it was a solid, but then he realized it couldn't be a solid and then it could be a complicated surface, but it couldn't be that. Anyway, it's eventually led him to this idea that it was a fractal. And, um, you know, this has uh, extraordinary consequences in a number of fields. But I think the most fundamental consequence is for some of the things that we'll talk about, which is really about reinterpreting uh, fundamental physics, the role that this type of geometry could play in fundamental physics. Yeah, so that's a uh, it's a huge um, uh, a huge conjecture to to, to be uh, charitable, um, and you you deal with this. You introduce it in in your first chapter. Uh, we also talk about the complexity of a three body problem, time and reversibility, uh, and then how this theory can affect 
every science. It's not just weather and economics, which seem obvious, but it has deep implications for every science, and as you were saying, even to the most fundamental level. And then in the geometry of chaos, which is your second chapter, you begin to lay out your, uh, lay down the gauntlet by saying chaos, that this way of thinking can underlie quantum mechanics in the Schrodinger equation, which, uh, you know, sounds like a, um, you know, a Buddhist denying Buddha. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of the practical aspects of this geometry is that it does explain this notion of intermittent instability, why systems can appear, even you know, chaotic systems can actually appear quite predictable uh, for long periods of time, but then suddenly undergo catastrophic uh, unpredictability. And I actually start with an example from uh, planetary motion. You know, there's a, there was a really beautiful animation, uh, which I provide a link to, of four planetary bodies going around each other. And if you looked at the animation, you'd think, oh, this is so boring. They're just going around each other in what looked like ellipses and nothing much is happening. But then suddenly, completely out of the blue, these planets zip off to infinity. They, they cross some sub, subtle instability and uh, they, they, uh, they, they all diverge from each other. And this, this, is, this kind of feature is brought out really clearly when you look at the geometry of chaos, how these instabilities are localized in particular parts of the geometry. And when you describe geometry, you mean how each individual case will um, will create a, um, a one kind of reality, and as it changes, it fills up this space. And the the naive assumption, I think what I would assume, is that eventually it would just cover the space evenly. But that's not the case. And that's the point that's of geometry. Right. That's, it's not, it's not that's just a, not the it's case. Just, and it, it's, not, it's not just uh, the case of just smoothly filling it out, maybe not perfectly at all at once, but like you flip, flip a coin a thousand times, you'll get closer and closer to 50%. That's not what happens. That's right. The geometry, the, the space does not get filled out like a solid. Uh, and there are always these gaps. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can zoom in to regions which look like they're completely sol solid, but there'll, there'll be gaps. And the gaps are kind of super, super, super important. Um, this is a type of geometry that was actually first discovered by George Cantor back in the, in the 19th century. And his, mitral, uh, his, his mathematical colleagues at the time uh, thought it was he was crazy. You know, they just didn't believe it. And it kind of sent him into a, into a depression that he never actually recovered from. But Cantor's geometry underlies Lorenz's geometry. And in my view, underlies a lot of the, uh, you know, the world that we live in and observe. So as I looked at from your book, I got four kind of characteristics of uh, Lorentzian uh, uh, geometry of chaos. And tell me if this is correct, and then describe each one very briefly. I had state space, geometry of an attractor, time and reversibility, and then the Cantor set of fractal uh, geometry. Yeah, so let, let me just briefly um, go through those. I mean, state space is a little bit of an abstract idea, but but uh, you, you, the example I used in my book was uh, thinking about buying a pair of trousers. Because if you buy a pair of trousers, you have to decide what uh, waist size to buy, what length of leg to buy, uh, maybe what color the trousers should be, what uh, you know material the, the trousers should be made of. 
So you could think of a, a four-dimensional space where the waist dimension was one di direction, the, the length was another direction, the color was a third direction, and the, I don't know, the type of material was a, was a fourth uh, dimension. And then a trouser would be a particular point in that four-dimensional space. And if you vary the point around, you're either varying the waist size or the length size or the color or the or the um, you know the uh, material. So, so that's a kind of concept of state space. And uh, Lorenz's state space is actually even simpler. It's just three dimensional, so you can visualize it. Um, so three variables, three dimensions. And what happens is that if you let uh, Lorenz's uh, equations go on a say an, an initial point in this state space and you you just wait for a long 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 time you find out it traces this strange looking geometry in this in the state space and what Lorentz realized to understand what that geometry is he went back to to the work of Cantor uh, who discovered this notion of a fractal and realized he was really looking at uh, uh, an example of uh, uh, Cantor's fractal geometry. The thing that's remarkable about this is that Isaac Newton would have understood Lorenz's equations. These are equations using his Newton's calculus. So Newton would have said, oh yeah, those are three coupled differential equations. I understand that. Uh, but if you said to Newton, those equations generate a kind of fractal geometry in the state space of those equations, he would have been completely flummoxed by that idea because for him geometry was you know the geometry of, of euclid it was spheres and ellipses and things like that which are very smooth this is the complete antithesis of a smooth geometry now the thing about this th this geometry is called an attractor because no matter where you start in state space the equations draw you down onto this attractor. They, they suck you onto the attractor or stuck the, suck the uh, point onto the attractor. You never see the opposite happen. Once the point is on the attractor, it never jumps off again. So there is a kind of irreversibility in time that states get attracted to the attractor, but they never leave it. Um, so it's a completely new type of thinking. The word attractor has sort of a teleological tinge to it that it, it, it sort of indicates it's always been there in some sense, and when the opportunity comes, it's going to suck you in, as you just put it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you don't mean it in a teleological sense, but... Um, well, I, in a sense, I, you see, I probably do mean it like that, because I, I do think, I mean, in a sense, the, the geometry of the attractor, it has a kind of timeless notion to it. Uh, it as a geometry it kind of exists outside of time um you know states evolve on the attractor but but the whole thing doesn't you know you can't say it only exists at a certain time and not before that time or after that time so it's kind of timeless so um i think when we come to talk about fundamental physics that's probably an important and, point and especially make. when we talk about alternative concepts of god which is the very last few pages of the book uh we'll get back to this attractor and the multi-dimensional faces it has 
Okay. Um, the, the next chapter, you again, digging more uh, deeply into this fundamental concept, which is the way that chapters in part one work, and it, it really helps us to understand. So I think the organization of part one was excellent for a very difficult subject to understand because it's so... It's actually simple to understand. It's just so radically different from the way we think normally in, in physics. Uh, so the third chapter you call Noisy Million Dollar Butterflies, and that's the classic Lorenz's, uh, as you point out, 1969 AAAS speech. Does the flap of a butterfly's wing in Brazil lead to a tornado in Texas? I think we're all familiar with that, but what you do is you, sh you show the deep mathematical significance. Now, what I want to read is a complicated quote that you have in the book, because to me, this was shocking and an eye-opener. And indeed, you, you, um, after you gave the quote and explained the Lorentzian thing, you called it the killer concept. I did a search in your book. You used the word killer once, and this <laughs> is it. This is the killer. Okay, I'm going to read it slowly because it's a little complicated. So certain formally deterministic fluid systems, which possess many scales of motion, we can understand that, are observationally indistinguishable from indeterministic systems, specifically that two states of the system differing initially, initial conditions, by a small observational error, very, very small, will evolve over time into two states differing as greatly differing as greatly as randomly chosen states of the system. Now, here's the point. Within a finite time interval, which cannot be lengthened by reducing the amplitude of the initial error. Now, what that means is that there's some in crazy fun, because I would have naturally thought you could reduce the time interval by reducing the, 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 uh, the amplitude, so that, uh, but you're saying, and he's, uh, Lorenz is saying, that you can't do that. I mean, that is unbelievably counterintuitive, and that's the one place you use the word killer. Right. And, you know, I have to say this is a, this is something that people, even in the field, do not understand well. If I take a, what I would call a conventional chaos model, the sort of one that Lorentz actually formulated in 1963, the one that sort of made him super famous, then as you correctly say, you could say to me, um, I want to make a prediction with that model uh, for a certain amount of time in the future. And you, it kind of doesn't matter how far ahead that time is. You could say a day, a month, a year, a decade, a century, a millennium. Whatever time you give me, I can tell you how accurately you need to know the initial conditions to make that prediction. So what, this is what mathematicians would call uh, that the system has continuous dependence on initial conditions, which means that you know, as the error in the initial conditions gets smaller and smaller, so you can predict out further and further. That just seems incredibly intuitive. I mean, it, it yeah, that's like... right. That that's completely intuitive. Lorentz uh, in 1969, which led to his famous uh, butterfly uh, talk at the AAAS meeting, American Advancement of Science meeting, asked this question not about his simple three component model but about the, the full infinite dimensional, what it's called infinite dimensional, equations of fluid mechanics. 
where you have, you know, big eddies, small eddies, small eddies on smaller eddies and so on. You know, the atmosphere is a good example. It's got cyclones. There are clouds embedded in the cyclones. Within the clouds, there is turbulence. And within the turbulent eddy in the, tur in the cloud, there's smaller scale turbulence. So he asked the question, if the uncertainty was confined to one of these very small scale parts of the system, uh, how long would it take uh, for that uncertainty to propagate up to larger scales and eventually uh, affect the accuracy of your largest scale, if you like, the, the cyclone scale? And what he found was that the uncertainty, as you go to smaller and smaller scales, the uncertainty grows faster and faster. Um, so, for example, you know, in a weather system, it may it may take a couple of days uh, for a, a, an error in a in a big low pressure system to grow. But if you have an error in a if you're trying to simulate a cloud, it may only take a couple of hours for a small error in that cloud to grow. And if it was a piece of turbulence within the cloud, that's even smaller scale error would grow maybe in time scale of minutes. Um, and he put this all together in a mathematical model which suggested, as you say, that there may be an absolute horizon, a limit to predictability, which even when the initial error is infinitesimally small, um, cannot be exceeded. This, this is an example of what uh, is sometimes called a singular limit. Uh, and maybe I can say it this way, that in a hypothetical deterministic, you see the equations of fluid mechanics are, are deterministic. So you could say, if you, if you precisely, absolutely, 100% precisely knew the initial conditions, then you could make uh, a prediction into the future, arbitrarily into the future. But what this singular limit says that even if your uncertainty is infinitesimally small, it will, it will destroy the ability to predict beyond a finite time. Now, I have to say, this is this actually has not been proven rigorously. And it's one of the open uh, problems in the, the, the so-called Millennium Prize problems of the Clay Mathematics Institute, proving that this is actually rigorously true, that effectively that Lorenz's conjecture about the equations of fluid dynamics having finite time predictability is literally true. We don't actually know rigorously whether this is the case or not. So at the moment, you know, it's a bit like Fermat's last theorem. It's it's Lorenz's last conjecture, if you like, which, which hasn't been proven. And if anyone can prove it one way or the other, then there's a million dollars at, at stake. It, it, it to me is in, in all my science career going back, you know, 50, 60 years, uh, it, it's one of the most counterintuitive thoughts and, and uh, results that I've ever seen. Counterintuitive, but nevertheless rather beautiful. And it, and it comes about, as I say, through the fact that uncertainty, you know, the growth of uncertainty is scale dependent. So as you go to smaller and smaller scales, the, the growth rate of uncertainty increases. And the whole thing, you know, as you get to tiny, tiny, tiny scales, the uncertainty is growing so quickly that it's, it's just killing your predictability. Off. So one practical application of this, which you bring up, which I, I want to verify, is even with perfect observations of the weather, you cannot predict ahead for more than about 14 days. So the idea of predicting ahead, say, three weeks would be, uh, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, 
it w- would be in principle impossible, even for a, a, an omniscient being like, like Laplace's demon that knows everything and can, and can calculate forwards and, and backwards. And you say that's the real meaning behind the butterfly effect. Uh, is that right? Well, I have to be a little bit careful here because my colleagues will <laughs> complain at me bitterly if I don't get this quite right. Um, I think what is, what is that that statement is true if one is predicting uh, the uh, you know the exact pattern of weather. So whether a you know a particular cyclone will hit on uh, on the fourteenth day or the fifteenth day, that sort of prediction you know we're getting we're getting to the limit of predictability uh, by about two or th- by about two weeks or so into the future, which, which is very unlikely, I think, that we'll exceed. But having said that, uh, I should just point out that there are reasons for being able to make longer range predictions of a more generic sort. Uh, and the, the classic example, which I, I guess people in the US are, are familiar with, is the El Nino event in the Pacific Ocean, which is this irregular warming or cooling of the Pacific, which we can probably predict pretty well, well, which can predict pretty well six months, even perhaps a year ahead of time. And when there's an El Nino event, it affects the statistics of weather. So you're still not predicting, you still can't predict a particular cyclone uh, more than a couple of weeks or so ahead. But you can say over this coming season, uh, you know, this, the, the cyclonic activity will be stronger than normal or weaker than normal, and therefore it'll be rainier than normal or drier than normal, um, you know, in a statistical sense. So I'm just trying to distinguish what Lorenz's paradigm is telling us is about the, the detailed predict, prediction of whether, you know, one day after the other is probably limited to around two weeks or so. Um, but there are certainly possibilities to predict the kind of statistical fluctuations of weather on a longer time scale because of the um, coupling to the oceans. And of course, the whole climate change thing is, is predicated on that, that we're doing something to the atmosphere, which is changing the statistics of weather in a, in a longer term sense. So you end part one by introducing uh, quantum uncertainty. Um, and then you deal with that very extensively in part three. But clearly, this is a uh, a deep motivation of the book because it pops up every so often, and it's uh, it is extraordinary radical. So the critical question, I think, is is quantum uncertainty, which everybody recognizes, epistemic or ontological, as you've said. Epistemic means it's just a question of our, our capacity to know, or ontological is it a fundamental property of the system that's that that, that is uh, immune to any maximum knowledge that that we could have. And you posit that the way of thinking of uh, uh, ensembles uh, could be the, 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 the way to distinguish between these two. And it's, so that the thinking would be that quantum uncertainty would be epistemic, which is a, a, a radical change. And that justifies that famous subtitle where you're linking quantum mechanics and climate change and the and the way the and the linkage is through this ensemble thinking of the geometry of chaos that's right and and by the way i'm not the first to suggest uh, about on, an ensemble interpretation of quantum mechanics and famously einstein himself uh, said that you know he thought the wave function uh, in quantum mechanics was just a representation of an ensemble of world of worlds and, you know, one of the worlds 
turns out to be reality, but we don't know which one of the ensembles, like a weather forecast, you know, one of the 50 weather forecasts when we run an ensemble of weather forecasts will turn out to be uh, pretty much what happens in the real world. But at the time we make the ensemble, we don't know. Um, so that's what Einstein believed. It was similar to that. Uh, but, but of course, that's not the way in which 99.9% of, of physicists think about it. And that comes because of a very famous uh, result called Bell's theorem. And uh, interestingly, this week, the 2022 Nobel Prize was given to three eminent experimental physicists who uh, who, who showed that uh, this, you know, the, the, if we're going to talk about Bell's theorem, that um, a certain experimental result, which traditionally um, seems to rule out Einstein's um, right. ideas. Let's let's get into that. Let's get the, into that into part three because that we're going to focus on that in part three. Okay, so that gives right. the, the overview. Part one was some heavy going to get through this because it's so counterintuitive. But but I, as I've said, I really loved it and learned a lot. So now in part two, you apply these ideas to various categories that you've studied with climate change, pandemics. What, what I'd like you to just do is just give a very, very brief overview of some of these. Um, and uh, you, you begin with in chapter five, which is the first chapter in part two, with two roads to Monte Carlo, which is a way of simulating uh, uh, probabilities. And, and you have this marvelous story that, uh, well, first of all, you say that um, if, what's, if the probability of rain between six o'clock and seven o'clock at night over my city on a Tuesday is 80%. Uh, you go through a lot of things, what that does not mean. So <laughs> go through that because it gives a little bit of a flavor and it's uh, of, of, of the nature of, of, of probabilistic language. Well, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this is something, you know, which does confuse a lot of people because these days, every time you look at your weather app, there is a probability of precipitation, as it were, a probability of rainfall, and nobody really quite knows what it means. Does it mean, you know, it's going to rain in 80% of my town or 80% of the time and all that sort of stuff. And that's not really what it means. If you have a, a, an ensemble forecast, there will be, let's say, you, you look at an ensemble forecast every day for a year, and then just select all of those occasions where the probability of rain was 80%. So that means that uh, in the ensemble, uh, you, you've, you've selected these ensembles where in 80% of the ensembles it's raining and in the in 20%, the remaining 20% of the ensemble it's not raining. Um, what you expect to find is that in reality, in that in those situations, so for that subset of ensemble forecasts where the prediction was for 80% rain, that in reality, it will have rained over your town in the allocated period of time, 80%, 80% of those occasions. Uh, I'm not sure I said that as well as I could have said it, but um, anyway, I, if you go to the book, you'll see the precise definition of what it means. So it doesn't mean it'll only rain in 80% of your town or 80% of the time. It's a statement about, it's a statement actually comparing the probability with the actual frequency of occurrence of rain in that, in that set of occasions. Now you you give this very practical significance in one of the one of the great stories of the book uh, that I love, 
where a friend of yours, say, would ask, I'm having this dinner party, and I don't know whether to put up a tent or not put up a tent, because uh, if it's going to rain, I need to put up a tent. And it sort of says 50% or whatever. And the way you uh, begin to address that question, because uh, you're the expert on this, and it's your friend, he was having a dinner party, he wants to know whether to put up a tent. You ask him, is the queen coming to the dinner party? Right. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> explain why that's important. Well, you see, at the end of the day, I think the, the, the message I want to put out here is that at the end of the day, knowing these probabilities will actually help you make a better decision. You know, so my friend called me up and said, you know, we're going to put a tent up. It was a wedding anniversary or something. Um, or at least they had the option to put the tent up. That was the thing. So should they do it? Uh, they had a, they, it was for a, about a week ahead and they, they had that option. Obviously, it costs money to put the tent up. So, you know, if it was going to be bright and sunny, they wouldn't do it. So the question I asked, as you say, who's coming to the to the party? Because if the queen was coming and I told you <laughs> there was a 5% chance of rain, you might still, you know, you it would be disastrous if you were the, you know, the local dignitary and you caused the queen to get wet. That would be awful. So um, <laughs> so in that situation, you might decide to put the the tent up just with a small probability uh, well, okay, the Queen wasn't coming. So how about the town mayor, I asked. Um, uh, so he said, well, why, why is that? Well, okay, if the town mayor got wet, I mean, it wouldn't be as bad as the Queen getting wet, but it's still slightly embarrassing. So you'd, you'd put your threshold up to maybe 20% chance of rain, let's say. Um, so uh, I, how about the, I asked the, you know, the, mother, the mo mother-in-law. Well, that was it. So I said, who's the most important person? I mean, he got, I think he got the drift there. So I said, who's the most important person? And it was probably the mother-in-law. So then I had to ask him, well, what's your probability <laughs> threshold, you know, uh, for the mother-in-law to get wet? Because, um, and then he said, well, I, I can't remember what the number, probably 40%. I think 50, 50%. It was 50%. Okay. So then I, you know, then I went to look at the, um, the actual probability forecast. But the point is, uh, and I think it was less than 50%, if I remember the story correctly. So, you know, he'd made a decision. Now, the serious point about this, though, uh, Robert, is that this is precisely how humanitarian organizations are making decisions about whether to send food, medicine, uh, you know, shelter, water, etc., to places that are potentially at risk from extreme weather before the event hits. So in the old days, you know, they would just wait uh, till till the event happened, because weather forecasts, you know, the old deterministic forecasts were never that reliable, and you couldn't be sure. But now that what they do is they do that kind of mother-in-law, queen, town mayor calculation to say how large a probability uh, does the weather, does the extreme weather event have to be for for us to be able to justify in terms of our financial, you know, um, our finances and so on, to justify sending food, me medicine, and so on in ahead of time. So they have a probability threshold that they've pre-calculated. And then when the event does occur with a, with a probability that exceeds that threshold, they know they have an objective reason to go in and, uh, and, um, uh, uh, and, and help people ahead of time. So this has really changed the way in which, you know, disaster relief and humanitarian aid is being done. It's called anticipatory action. And it's really a big, it's a big new area in, in uh, disaster relief. Enormously significant. Tim, let's go through some of the chapters in part two very quickly so we understand how the primacy of doubt thinking, the butterfly effect, and ensemble prediction can affect each of these really big categories. Climate change. Right. I mean, we, 
you know, I, I wanted to be upfront and honest about the uncertainties that there are in climate change. And um, I focus very much on what are called climate feedbacks, things like how do clouds respond to uh, our emissions of carbon dioxide, because this will completely determine how much warming we get, uh, but say by the end of the century. Um, and we use ensembles because we don't have a precise description of clouds. We don't actually understand clouds in all their detail. And the models have different representations of clouds. Uh, so at the end of the day, we end up with probability distributions of things like global warming, which can range from, you know, one degree uh, for a doubling of carbon dioxide up to, or just one and a half degrees, let's say, up to uh, maybe six or seven degrees. Wow. That's and huge. Uh, uh, and of course, like it's like, you know, the, the, the guy who has to, my friend who has to make the decision with the tent, it's up to us to decide based on those probabilities whether we want to take uh, action to try to minimize the risk of climate change. Good. And you, you and you articulate well the the difference between the maximalist and minimalist positions and the the science that uh, actually uh, uh, undermines both of those views in, in order to give a, a rational approach. Uh, pandemics. Well, I wrote the book during um, the COVID pandemic, and I was struck actually as the science of uh, COVID prediction developed. How 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 close uh, the analogy and, and indeed the science of COVID prediction was uh, with, with climate and weather prediction. And, you know, about halfway through the COVID pandemic, people started to um, uh, write papers on uh, ensemble prediction uh, of, of COVID deaths and COVID hospitalizations. And these ensembles were based on multiple models that were developed in different institutes. Um, precisely, actually, as the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, do for climate change. They get groups around the world to run uh, their predictions with different scenarios for carbon dioxide. And in a similar way, COVID, the COVID people then were, were doing similar uh, types of work with um, predicting hospitalizations and deaths for different, different policy scenarios. Um, you know, in other words, we let everyone interact and don't care about it, or we try to really restrict interaction. So I was kind of struck by uh, by that. So I, I wrote a whole chapter on the developing science of, of ensemble COVID prediction. And my only kind of thing at the end is to say that just as the World Meteorological Organization organizes these uh, ensembles of climate change for the world, so I think the World Health Organization could do a similar job in coordinating groups around the world in producing uh, ensemble uh, pandemic predictions. And I'm sure this will happen, but um, I think it's still a bit, bit more coordination needed before it does. The happen. analogy is very strong. It's not just a metaphor. It really, really works. Uh, next chapter, financial crashes. Well, uh, you see, there was an interesting quote from a former chief economist at the Bank of England when the Queen came to visit the City of London um, a few years after uh, the famous 2008 financial crash. And he said, the Queen said, rather, why didn't you, speaking to the economist, why didn't you see this coming, uh, this financial crash? And they were kind of uh, rather sort of humiliated, I think, by this remark. And the chief economist said, that it was it was their 
so he used the word Michael Fish. So I have to explain for people outside the UK. <laughs> Michael Fish was a the forecaster who famously didn't forecast the biggest storm in 300 years in 1987, just a few hours, 12 hours or so before it happened. So the, the chief economist said this was their Michael Fish moment. Um, and, you know, it kind of struck me and, he, and it seemed to. So then I actually started contacting a lot of economists and saying, you know, are you guys applying the same ensemble techniques uh, that we do in weather prediction? And uh, uh, I, I got a very discouraging response from most of them saying that the, the science is not developed well enough and so on. But, but eventually I managed to uh, track down a few people that were doing really interesting work with uh, what are called agent based models. Uh, where this ensemble technique can be applied. And I, I showed at the end of the chapter, there were some encouraging signs that um, that we could use some of these techniques in, in economic predictions. The question is, is the 2008 financial crash an example of one of these inter intermittent instabilities? And it, it seems from this ensemble work that there's some some truth in that, in fact. When I read that chapter, I wondered this question, uh, that what's the relationship between ensemble predictions, specifically in economics, as you had it, with what's called systems dynamics, which was developed by Jay Forrester at MIT? Because when I was at MIT, I actually took that course with him and with Ed Roberts. Um, and there seem to be some kinds of similarities in terms of thinking, although that was much more deterministic and it had, you know, a thousand variables to build, build a, a, an economic model. Well, I, I think there possibly are. I mean, as I say, the current sort of buzzwords are agent-based models, and I think maybe there's some connection there. But I think the key, the key idea, though, is can we develop this to the extent where we can identify, you know, what are the key uncertain variables and uncertain parameters and uncertain um, representations, if you like, of agent-agent of agent interaction and develop you know, credible ensemble systems where essentially you can use the spread of the ensemble, the, the, how much the, the members deviate from each other as a kind of measure of how predictable the, the situation is. I think, you know, to be honest, we're still, the, the jury's still out on this, but there are some encouraging signs that... that yeah, it, it, seems, it seems fearsomely complex to do, but uh, the results that you've had in, in weather and, and, and also in pandemics uh, gives, gives one uh, a reason what, to, what, one to thing, pursue it. I mean, one thing that came out very clearly in my, uh, in my attempts to find out what's going on in economics is that a lot of people still seem to cling on to this idea that there should be some very simple kind of mathematical principle that will somehow, you know, can be used to predict the economy. And uh, my experience in weather prediction is that that is just not, uh, that's not the case, that to, certain, to a certain extent, a brute force um, you know, uh, solution of the equations of fluid dynamics, you know, is the best way uh, to, to make a weather forecast. And it uses, you know, it doesn't use elegant mathematics, it uses kind of engineering mathematics. And my plea uh, to the economists is to kind of embrace engineering mathematics uh, to their heart, because I think that's where the, the biggest gains are going to be made. D don't, don't pretend that there's some elegant mathematical theorem that's out there that's going to predict uh, what's going to happen to the banks and things in the next six months.
Let's go on to part three, our most fun part and what most directly relates to Closer to Truth because you deal with foundations of quantum mechanics, free will, consciousness, the different ways of understanding the nature of God. So those are all our core topics. So let's start with quantum mechanics. Uh, And you say, my own belief is that methodological reductionism, that smaller is always more fundamental uh, as you get down in the physics to to particle physics and then subatomic physics, maybe string theory, is a flawed philosophy that fundamental physics is going 180, 180 degrees in the wrong direction because of that. That is, you know, if I used the word heresy for that, that would not, that would not be an overstatement. Right. Um, well, I, I say that for two reasons. Um, first of all, I mean, which every physicist will kind of agree with me about, is that you know, we have these incredibly long-standing problems which haven't really moved forward a great deal. And the one that I worked on in my PhD work back in the 1970s was this problem of quantum gravity. How do we synthesize quantum physics and gravitational physics? And, uh, you know, people claim for a long time that string theory would do it, but it's not, uh, you know, people have been at that for a long time and it seems to have ground to a bit of a, 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 a an impasse. And then, of course, more recently, with the issues of dark energy and dark matter, you know, these have thrown up problems that current physics just doesn't seem to be able to address terribly well. Now, on top of that, you know, the the whole, the whole philosophy here uh, in my book is that this geometry of chaos the geometry that underpins these chaotic systems is itself a fundamental property of of nature. And the geometry encompasses the holistic side of the chaotic system. If you describe the geometry, you're describing the entirety of this chaotic system. So if, if the idea is then in part three is to say, well, could the whole universe be thought of as a chaotic system? If it can, does it also have a chaotic, a strange, what's called a strange attractor, a fractal attractor in cosmological state space? This, you know, the trouser state space, but for very large, <laughs> large trousers, if you like. Um, and are the laws of physics? So this is the this is the key point. Could the laws of physics, at their most fundamental, be describing the geometry of this fractal, cosmological fractal. And and could that provide us new insights? So that's what we can talk about into quantum mechanics. I do believe it can. If that's right, it's saying that this geometry is the fundamental quantity. And that's a property of the whole universe. It's everything that's in the universe altogether. So it's not something that you're going to probe by just going to smaller and smaller scales or bigger and bigger energies in a particle accelerator. It's a property of the really the largest scales in the universe as a whole. So it's a complete antithesis of yeah, methodological reduction. Yeah, it, it's really an astonishing uh, conjecture. It's, uh, we talk about top-down thinking if we want to explain conscious in the brain, but this is the, the, the most massive top-down thinking that you can imagine. 
because obviously the holy grail of physics is quantum gravity, unifying general relativity and quantum mechanics, and as you said, it remains elusive. Most physicists think that if there is a problem, and there may be, you have to ask what's wrong with general relativity, and you're asking maybe we should say what's wrong with quantum mechanics. Absolutely. Um, general relativity is, is a... Uh, uh, I mean, A, it's a remarkably beautiful theory. It's a nonlinear theory. I have a great... Uh, you know, nonlinearity underpins absolutely everything in my book. Chaos theory would not exist uh, if systems were linear. A linear system is one where the outputs are in proportional to the inputs, or are proportional to inputs. So, yeah, so uh, general relativity is beautiful. And we understand general relativity pretty well. You know, I mean, th there are still some issues perhaps with black holes and singularities. But broadly speaking, we understand general relativity. By contrast, we just don't understand quantum mechanics. We can apply the rules of quantum mechanics. I often think, you know, we're like computers. Uh, as, as, as kind of, you know, a computer doesn't understand the weather equations when it... Uh, when it makes a weather forecast. <laughs> Similarly, we don't really understand quantum mechanics. We can apply the rules and they give perfectly normal sort of answers and things, but we just don't understand what's going on. And I think, you know, I think that is a problem. And it's so, it, it, it really is the problem that, that makes it so difficult to combine gravity and quantum th physics together. So, Tim, you go on from there, not, not uh, satisfied with one heresy, but now you go on to call the accelerating expansion of the universe potentially an illusion. And you say that some regions of the universe where entropy may be decreasing. Uh, so two more heresies. Uh, and then dark matter may not be some, uh, some uh, a, a new particle, but rather the effect of, uh, of space-time curvature on the invariant set. So you've, you've, you've uh, collected a, an ensemble of heresies. Yeah, okay. I mean, these are, you know, these... So my basic hypothesis is that, as we were saying earlier, the universe can be thought of as a chaotic system evolving on this fractal geometry. I call it the invariant set. It's the, that's the sort of technical mathematical phrase that that would be used one way of disproving that idea would actually be if the universe really does end up uh in a heat death so it, it's uh, it, it just expands it accelerates away and then eventually just dies and nothing's happens it, it you know goes it goes it continues expanding and accelerating forever which are some of the cosmological models so that would be inconsistent um with uh with my idea but my saying that dark energy may not well a we don't really know what it is it could it could potentially not it could just be a local manifestation in our part of the universe of acceleration uh and also we don't know whether it'll continue forever i mean there are certainly theories where it re reverses so um i don't see that as a major uh a major heresy, but th the really important part of all this is what the implications are for quantum mechanics. You then go on to apply the the thinking of ensemble forecasting and the and the importance of noise in ensemble thinking to our brains and 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 see that perhaps creativity 
the ability to think of new things is not disrupted by noise, but rather uh, um, enabled by noise. Yeah, I mean, there's very little doubt that uh, we have so many neurons in our brains, 80 billion, and they're powered by such a tiny amount of of energy, um, 20 watts, 20 joule, joules per second, which is six orders of magnitude less than a typical supercomputer takes. Um, the, the, brain, the brain actually is noisy. And noise often is most apparent when we're, when we're multitasking. We're walking down the road, we're listening to the birds cheep, we can see various things. We're doing lots of things. And quite often, that's when we have our flashes of insight. That's when, if you, if you talk to all the Nobel Prize winners, they'll often tell you, uh, I had the critical idea when I was uh, crossing the road, as Roger Penrose would say, or Henri Poincaré catching a bus somewhere, or you know, just doing something uh, 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 very, you know, not focusing, not concentrating hard on the problem. And I think it's this kind of when we're relaxing or when we're multitasking, that's when we're most susceptible to noise. And I think what noise does then is give us these sort of creative ideas that maybe in the light of day, you know, 99% of them will, will realize are rubbish ideas, but every now and again, 1% gets through. And that's the eureka moment that, that changes things. So I, I think, you know, without that uncertainty and noise in the brain, we would not be the creative species we are. So, you know, noise is not, we've evolved to make constructive use of noise. And I think that's a, I think that actually has important messages for the development of, of AI systems. Doing it in a deterministic framework just won't, won't get anywhere. Your last chapter deals with the big questions of free will, consciousness, and even God. Um, and you use the, the primacy of doubt and the geometry of chaos to contribute to these debates. Uh, you don't claim you're answering all the questions, but you are saying, uh, I was very skeptical when I came to these chap chapters because we, we've been dealing with this for 20 years. Uh, but you do add a new way of thinking to each of these be it right or wrong, is, is maybe not so important, but you, you kind of alter our way of thinking. So I'd like you to describe very briefly for each of these, start with free will, how the geometry of chaos can give a, 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 a new perspective. Yeah, I mean, the problem with, with free will is that it, it's a problem if you believe in determinism, because then you say, well, everything I do today was determined by whatever the universe was like yesterday. And what happened yesterday was determined by what the universe was like the day before. So then, you know, everything kind of goes back to the, the, the Big Bang initial conditions. Everything was determined by the Big Bang. And then you have this problem of moral responsibility. Do you, do you let Hitler off the hook because his actions were determined by the initial conditions at the Big Bang? So he had no choice than to do otherwise. Uh, he had no choice in, in doing what he did. Um, the the The... The, the problem is that the opposite of that, indeterminism, doesn't really help because then, you know, then it just seems like what people do is random, you know, so that they, they don't have any responsibility either, moral responsibility either, because what they did was somehow just random noise causing them to do what they did. I mean, this has kind of bothered me uh, uh, for, for quite a while. And it seems to me that this notion of the geometry of chaos does actually provide a, at least it provides another way of, of thinking about this problem, and it may it may help us out of this dilemma. 
the idea really is that it's this geometry that's the fundamental thing. It's not the Big Bang initial conditions are not fundamental in this picture. It's the geometry of chaos. And in a sense, today, what happens today um, is as important and as fundamental as what happened, you know, 13.8 billion years ago. It's this, it's this geometry that's important. I'm, re I'm reminded there's a, there's a famous phrase by the physicist John Wheeler who talked about general relativity. And he said one way of thinking about general relativity is that um, space tells matter how to move and matter tells space how to curve. So there's a kind of duality between matter and space. And I think of our actions as human beings and the geometry of this uh, of this chaotic attractor that that my postulate is that the universe is a chaotic system with a with a fractal geometry. There's a kind of duality here with Wheeler's uh, aphorism, in the sense that the fractal geometry is telling us how to behave, but similarly how we behave is 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 determining the geometry of the fractal attractor. So it seems to me that there is a, a case here for keeping determinism, because after all, these, these fractals are deterministic, but at the same time, allowing for this notion of moral responsibility, because what we do, in a sense, informs the geometry of the attractor as much as the geometry of the attractor informs us. There's a kind of a self-referential notion here between this geometry and our behavior. Now, look, I'm not saying I have a complete theory of this, but it, it's, it seems to me it gives a new perspective, if you like, on this really old. Uh, I agree. It does give a new perspective. There are obviously a lot of questions because if this, uh, if this uh, invariant set and the ge geometry of the whole universe existed prior, um, what we do today, it, can't affect what happened before, backward causation or retro causation. There's a lot, a lot of issues, but it, it gives a new perspective. Let's go on to consciousness. Consciousness is, is tied with the, I see another aspect of free will, uh, which people don't seem to ask very much, is why do we have such a visceral feeling that we have free will? I mean, we all feel it, uh, even, even kind of died in the world determinists, kind of feel you know, sure. there's some very visceral feeling. Um, there's something in the brain. Uh, now, this notion of the laws of physics being determined by the geometry of this fractal means that uh, there are neighboring worlds on this fractal geometry, which by virtue of the fact that the equations are the geometry, these neighboring worlds are somehow also contributing to the evolution of our own world. Now, if we, if there are quantum mechanical processes in the brain, which are playing a role in our cognition, as for example, Penrose and Hameroff would claim, and perhaps others, then maybe um, our perception is the way in which quantum mechanics affects our cognition and perception of the world is to give us a kind of a weak uh, conception of these neighboring worlds on this fractal geometry. And these neighboring worlds are examples of counterfactual worlds. They're worlds where we might have done something, but we didn't. Um, and my claim is that the 
our our visceral sense of free will actually arises because we have some conception about these neighboring counterfactual worlds. Now, it seems to me that that argument may also then generalize to talk about the notion of consciousness as well, because, you know, I, I used the example when I was writing my book that uh, every now and again, I would look up uh, from uh, my book and and see my cactus, which I still have on my windowsill behind this computer screen. I became conscious of the cactus. But when I was writing the book, I mean, the, the photons were scattering off the cactus and going in my eye, but I wasn't conscious of the cactus because I was focusing on something else. So the question arises, what do we mean by being conscious of the cactus? And it means that somehow we perceive the cactus to be have a distinct individual uh, realism within the the world of objects in my study and that notion of it being an independent object means that it could potentially in this counterfactual way it could have been uh in a different place to where it actually was and again this notion that maybe our brains can have some weak cognition of these counterfactual worlds on the invariant set is what gives us this notion that objects have an independent existence. And that's really seems to me what underpins our notion of consciousness, because it's being conscious. Again, it's a, it's, a, it's a new perspective. I appreciate it. I think there's a distinction between attention to the thing you're, the reflection you're seeing and phenom the phenomenology of inner awareness uh, are m m more complex issues. But if you carry through the, the, the concept of the cosmological invariant set in the counterfactual worlds, you make the, the additional claim that there could be a kind of afterlife where we, and I'm reading, we and our loved ones are coming back in some future epochs of the universe on trajectories in state space, close to the present one, but none precisely the same as the present one. Robert, you're making a really good point, which is that on these fractal attractors, um, what we're actually looking at is a the evolution of a state uh, as it goes around state space, and it eventually comes back to a place which is close to, but not quite the same as where it started. And these, what I call these counterfactual worlds, are actually worlds in some future or past epoch of the universe. The universe, they're not really parallel universes, they're just future manifestations of um, of our universe. The fact that the universe gets back to a point which is close to the present means that, you know, we will, if this is right, we will get back to a world where we will, where we, we have our loved ones, we're in the world that seems familiar, but things will be slightly different and we'll make slightly different decisions. Some will be better, some will be worse. And I, I find that a a kind of a comforting thought, if it's true. Um, you know, the idea of going to a perfect nirvana where everything is perfect just somehow doesn't seem quite right to me. But going back to a world where, you know, we have, a, we have chances to do things over again, I, I find that somehow, uh, uh, and where we'll meet our loved ones and so on again. And as I say, we'll make a hash of some things, but maybe other things will do better. I find that a kind of comforting philosophy. Well, it, it articulates well with some Eastern philosophies, philosophies in terms of uh, cycles and 
things as opposed to the the Abrahamic religions of uh, of linearity, but. Uh, but they're never precise cycles. This is the the key point about chaos. Things are never precisely cyclic. They come back close to being cyclic, but then they diverge again. So the implications, you would say, again, the last the last thing in the book is is about God. Is that the this cosmological invariant set of the geometry of chaos for the whole universe could be considered a logical alternative to the traditional God in that it's timeless. Uh, it is certainly creating what we have, we consider the real world. And it's sort of a, a multi-dimensional object that has many guises that perhaps could represent the multifaceted face of God. It's a possibility. I look, I, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to try to preach on this in any way, but it, it's a kind you're, of, an you're not starting idea. a new religion, right? I'm not starting a new religion, uh, but it kind of ticks a lot of the boxes and it has some appeal to me. I mean, I don't I don't sort of dwell on this in my day to day life, but it, it, it's an intriguing idea. And maybe it just needs thinking through a bit more. But um, it seems to it seems to tick a lot of the boxes for somebody with a scientific mind that doesn't want, you know, it doesn't want somehow things which transcend physics because i don't think there's anything i'm proposing it might it might transcend a lot of orthodoxy but it, there's nothing that's uh, non non-physical i don't violate mm. any principles of physics mm. so far as i'm aware so this seems to me a a plausible way of thinking about god uh, for somebody who who is a uh, you know a scientist at heart look i have one final question um and that is what is the articulation between the these multitude of, traje of trajectories on the invariant set, how does that relate to the so-called multi-world interpretation of quantum mechanics? I mean, they're, they're very different in their, in their uh, mechanisms, but the results are kind of the same. You're, you're right in a, in a sense that, um, that they both postulate these many worlds. I would say just from what we were talking about, there are, in my case, these are actually not many worlds. There are, it's our own world that has evolved through multiple epochs and come back close to where it is now. So it's actually just one world going through a kind of a very, you know, evolving on this fractal geometry. Uh, so from that point, it's different. But on the other hand, you're right. Um, but I, I think where I... <laughs> The, the the sort of standard many worlds Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics is an attempt. So let me tell you what I think. I'm going to get many people who are who are many worlds people complaining about this, but <laughs> many worlds theory is an or interpretation is a, is an attempt to uh, interpret the Schrödinger equation right. literally, and I think there are many 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 problems with many worlds. You know, for example, they talk about branching. Uh, universes, universes sort of splitting. Now, I've never seen any rigorous uh, mathematics describing how a universe splits or branches. Uh, and I think many world theory has problems in, in, in tackling that. So my approach is not to try to interpret the Schrodinger equation, but to say there is actually something deeper than the Schrodinger equation, for which the Schrodinger equation is a uh, is a kind of an approximation, and I could tell you in more detail what I mean by that, but I think we've run out of time, so I won't. But 
So uh, at a sort of technical level, this is really quite different to many worlds. But then the point of view of it, it, it has a flavor of many worlds. I agree there are some qualitative <laughs> similarities. Qualitative, well, but not quantitative. Uh, Tim, I think you have given us a uh, remarkably fresh and novel approach uh, to understanding uh, all things that are happening, not just on the, um, the practical level of climate change and economics and pandemics, but in terms of a fundamental way to think about the, the, the existence of all reality. And uh, I really applaud you for that. I think that's, that's terrific. As I said at the opening, it's brave <laughs> because I'm sure there'll be a lot of critique, uh, but I think it's a very important uh, contribution uh, to, to thinking and kind of uh, uh, disturbing the uh, the status quo, which uh, which is a uh, uh, and, and basing it on on hard science and things we know to be true. Um, where you take it, people can argue with. I'd argue with some of what you said with free will and consciousness and God. But you know, uh, I, I've been we've been going twenty two years on closer to truth, still haven't still haven't come to the truth. People always say closer to the truth, and I always say it's not the truth. It's just present progressive, closer to truth. Uh, so right. I think I think you have made a major contribution to closer to truth, not closer to the truth. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Robert. The, the thing I would say is that I, I can do this in my stage of my career because it kind of doesn't matter to me a great deal <laughs> or whether I get a lot of criticisms or not. Uh, I do worry, though, that a younger version of myself, you know, making such statements might well hinder my career and that kind of bothers me a bit that 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 can be the case no i, I i'm i'm sure that i'm sure that's the case but i'm very happy that you're able to do it now as i said i love the book i recommend it to everybody the primacy of doubt viewers can also watch hundreds of videos on foundations of quantum mechanics consciousness free will and alternative concepts of god for those who want that on the closer to truth website and closer to truth youtube channel Tim, it was a great pleasure meeting and reading your book. I look forward to more conversations in the future. And to everyone else, thanks for watching. Thank you. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.